Welcome to the Holding History Podcast, a series of bookish conversations about the fascinating and sometimes puzzling ways we record, share, and preserve cultural knowledge. In each episode, we speak with a guest and tell new stories about old media. While every conversation is different, we return to one particular question. What makes a collection special? My co-host is my wonderfully nerdy friend, Sarah Marty, co-director of the Bolt Center for Arts Administration at the University of Wisconsin School of Business. Sarah is also a theater director, a production manager, and, much to my dismay, an accordion player with a slight addiction to polka. (laughs) And my co-host is my loquacious friend, Joshua Calhoun, professor in the Department of English and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. Josh is an avid hiker, likely to be found reading a pocket-sized edition of Shakespeare's (laughs) sonnets while on the side of a mountain. We're excited about this episode with Anne Strain-Champs, right? I mean, she's amazing. She's incredible, and I'm just so excited she was one of our first interviews for the podcast. Anne is the host and co-founder of Wisconsin Public Radio's To the Best of Our Knowledge. She's a Peabody Award winner, and she's one of the first women to produce in radio and podcasting. We recorded this this interview in uh, December 2020 uh, when the world was on lockdown, and uh, we were all in different places, and I was in the Adirondack Mountains, and you were in Madison. In my and... home office, where I spent most of that entire year. <laughs> and so we had such an interesting conversation, and it just it went on. We, we, we covered so much. Our associate producer, Tom Van Camp, did such an amazing job of editing this free-ranging, far-ranging, all-ranging conversation into a concise interview that's our first episode for the new Holding History podcast. Yeah, I don't know how you you did it. I don't know how you cut um, an interview like that. The conversation was wonderful, but we cover a lot of terrain. I mean, we we talk about hosting and editing a podcast, about the challenge of transferring old media to new media, like reel-to-reel tapes to MP3 files. Uh, We also talked about how records can misrepresent as much as they represent and we somehow found a way to fit in a really provocative conversation that matters a lot to me about environmental impact of special collections libraries. Okay, so out of all of that, Sarah, did you have a favorite moment from this conversation? I think the thing that stuck with me the most is that Anne talked about the power of voice. Yeah. You know, we always think of um, radio as theater of the mind, and <laughs> her description of hearing this this ghost or this captured part of a person that's separate and distinct but somehow connects you across the miles and across generations and and what that is to share those stories and share that humanity was really striking yeah you know you say we always think of radio's theater of the mind i've never thought of it as that that's a brilliant way of putting it and it really encapsulates the episode uh we're so excited to share this uh this conversation with you My name is Anne Strainchamps. I'm the host of To the Best of Our Knowledge, which is a podcast and a public radio show. I've been working in public radio for decades, uh, have produced and hosted a lot of things, and this one is uh, my first and best love. What, what is To the Best of Our Knowledge in five words or... I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you, knew, if you knew how many years we have... Um, tried to come up with a tagline, or we've gone through God knows how many taglines. Uh, to make a long story short, I think of it as um, an audio version of what in magazine terms is called a thoughtful weekly. Yeah. So in some ways, the topic doesn't really matter. What matters is how much you know, diversity and creativity can we bring to exploring a subject from multiple angles. 
in your work with, to the best of our knowledge, what are some of the skills that make you good at your jobs as both a producer and as a host? I think curiosity primarily. I mean, it's funny having done this for a really long time. The job shaped me and I shaped the job. So it's kind of like we've grown up together. So there are skills that I have now that I did not have when we began. And there are personal traits I have that I've come to really value that the job, the the show taught me. One of them is open-mindedness. Um, and yeah, so it's curiosity as a way of life and open-mindedness. Um, partly, I think... I've just come to value those more and more, partly because it's the way, as any therapist will tell you, it's the way to defuse almost any kind of conflict. You know, you can't hate people if you're just curious about them. We're thinking a lot about what makes a collection special. Since we're talking to you today and we're thinking with you about the kinds of collections that you play with, uh, we're wondering what makes an audio archive special? Hmm. Well, there are so many kinds, but the first thing that comes to mind is actually uh, a story a UW-Madison historian told me recently about an audio archive he um, kind of discovered not too long ago. It's, a, it's in Germany. It's a recording. It's an, it's an archive of audio recordings that were made by German scientists, um, or they sent out people with early recording equipment, people who were beginning to go to Africa. So this is around the turn of the century, uh, a little before World War One. Germany and some of the other Western powers were carving up Africa um, and um, doing, doing all of the... Um, the traumatic, awful work of of colonization. And phonograph recording was new. And these folks got really yeah. excited about making recordings. And so they would ask anybody who was going, you know, whether you were in the military or maybe a missionary or whatever, go and record. And they had this idea that the sounds, the music that African villagers were making was some kind of like ooer, primitive music. They thought, ooh, we can get to the origin of music. And they made all these scratchy, scratchy recordings, and you can hear them today. But the complicated thing is that there was a perspective, a very colonialist, even racist perspective, built into that project from the beginning in the sense that, you know, it was steeped in primitivism. You know, the idea that, oh, this is some primitive, unsophisticated form of music. Um, and so listening to those voices in that archive now is really complicated. For one thing, you listen to those voices and you're hearing the voices of people who who were recorded and objectified by the people who were holding the microphones. Some of them maybe didn't want to be recorded. Some of them might have liked re being recorded. There's just so many kinds of questions. Um, so an audio archive can be really complex, and because it's voices, an audio archive is basically ghosts, and you know, and then, yeah. and then that raises all kinds of interesting questions, like what is our responsibility to those ghosts? Um, who did they think we yeah. they were? Who do we think they are now that we're listening to them? But at bottom, I I I love the human voice. I think. Um, 
it's wonderful that we can write and express ourselves so well, but there's just nothing like hearing somebody speak. You hear in vocal intonation so much of what we can't actually put into words. Many people know your voice from hearing you on To the Best of Our Knowledge. And uh, if I were to describe your voice or write it down and, and, and blog about it or something like that, you know, just talk about the timbre of your voice and, and the recognizable, uh, how, how it strikes me. It's to me so interesting that we feel like the voice recording gives us a different kind of access or a different kind of reality. We say, oh, I really, really heard you. When you're hearing a voice, it's a physical experience. So if you're just reading a page, you know, just your eyes are taking in. I mean, of course, like I love books. So so you're also, of course, smelling the book and you can touch the page of the book. So it's, it's a tactical experience also. Yeah. But um, any kind of speech or anything that comes out of your body. So it's coming out of me in breath and in um, sound waves. And those sound waves are mm. going into your ears, into your body. So it's, there is a, a, it's a profoundly physical connection. You know, when I'm recording a radio show, I, I, there's no feedback. I don't see anybody. So I have to imagine that the audience is there. The first time I did anything on stage, I, I'm actually a fairly somewhat shy person. The first time I did anything on stage was um, both terrifying and it also felt like, oh my God, this is like, this is what it's supposed <laughs> to be. I, c yeah. I was not expecting the yeah. energy that yeah. came from the audience. Yeah. It kind of blew me away. I'm missing that in my lecture classes right now. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah. Very, very much so. Um used to being in front of a classroom and thinking about live performance, how there's that electricity. So as you, you know, as you said, you share a breath, you're sharing the same space and there's physically, there's a kinetic reaction where your heartbeat will change with those around you, where you have an emotional and visceral connection with what's wow. happening on stage. If somebody's an incredible performer or singer or musician and your own biorhythms mm -hmm. will adapt to what is happening around mm -hmm. you in a way that doesn't necessarily happen when you have wow. this distance wow. of the digital divide, for sure. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. That said, that said, I will say that, so my favorite part of, of audio is not actually hosting. I still, I'm still not actually completely comfortable as a host. Um, for me, there is having, having somebody else's voice in my head and meeting them, not seeing them, not, I don't know what they look like. Just hearing them in my headphones, that is, it's, it's a kind of sacred space always. Because, I mean, some of you are on headphones right now. You know how it's, the, the audio you, the experience of listening to audio in a headphone is kind of all-encompassing. It feels like it's its own yeah, yeah. special space, its own kind of world. So, there's something liminal about it. And when you meet there in that space with another person who is just also a voice to you, and you can forget about all the nervousness of what does my face look like? Oh, you know, she looks worried or all the visual cues. When all those go away, it becomes so much simpler and so much easier to hear. Like I'm not distracted then. And then yeah, it's easier yeah. to hear little things, the breath, 
the pause, the slight change of intonation on a particular word, those things that tell you that, no, here's a place to lean in, or there's more here. Anyway, that's what I, that's what I love about audio. It, it could work the other way, too. Have you ever heard somebody's voice? And, well, I, we just started by talking about historic recordings. Um, I remember when some some hit batch of historic recordings arrived and there were a bunch from um, poets I had never heard read, you know, long dead poets, T.S. Eliot, um, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Virginia Woolf. I remember listening and thinking, oh, she sounded like that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you'd hear an accent or... I had no idea T.S. Eliot sounded like such a prig. <laughs> it was so disappointing. I'm really interested to hear uh, your response on this. As a producer, how do you know what doesn't fit in an episode or even on the show? When I first started editing interviews... Um, I used to transcribe them verbatim, and this is before there was software that would do that for it. So imagine how dedicated I had to be, but I felt like I could not decide how to edit an interview without a written transcript in front of me. And then I could see, you know, the logical connections. Oh, this bit doesn't fit if I take this out and, you know, connect it over here. So that was very rational editing and very often um, I would get done with the edit and it would all make rational sense and it would just sound bad. It would just sound, uh, I would have cut the life out of it. So, so then you learn, next step, I think you learn that the life, the energy of an interview is not just in the words. It's also in, um, it's in the laughter. Sometimes it's in the small details. So then you start thinking more poetically about interviews in the sense that it's not just a bunch of rational ideas. Sometimes the most beautiful thing or the thing that you're going to remember most in an interview is actually an image. Thinking about the saving, the preserving, you know, what makes audio stories hard or easy to collect, to catalog, to preserve, and to share? Yeah, that's hard. Um, given contemporary technology, we could just about save everything right now. That's what's kind of scary. Like I think about this, um, you know, this pandemic moment and so many people are now meeting over Zoom. So easy to click record. So easy to have a personal family archive of all of these conversations. Would they all be worth saving? I don't think so. Um, I guess it's, it's kind of the same thing we ask, you know, of a story or a novel or a poem, which one is worth keeping, you know, and that gets down to very subtle questions about um, artistry and what's a story, um, what do we value most, what was unusual, except you don't only want to save what's unusual or special, you know, you want to save what's also every day. So it's hard, I guess. And I, th I think that also ties into this idea of going back to your reference to the historical recordings, who's curating what is preserved yeah. and how are they doing so? Yeah. yeah. 
And it, it links it links to a question I, I really care about right now because I'm writing a book on it. But you know, the environmental cost of of preserving everything, uh, cultural heritage versus climate change, and and you know, what if we do keep everything? How much does it cost uh, in environmentally to to run all the servers to keep those fans going to save all that stuff? It's a uh, it's fascinating to think about our our uh, wh when we call something hoarding and when we call something preserving. Yeah, I think about that. Um, with our own, to the best of our knowledge, archive, um, when we added our digital producer, Mark Rickers, um, Mark said, you know, you need to make some plans for saving all this. You guys have an incredible archive. Um, at that point, I think we probably had 10 years of archives that were simply on CD sitting in stacks and stacks of boxes at WPR. And then down in the basement, there were even more boxes from the reel-to-reel -reel years. And the reel-to-reel -reel years, that's complicated because reel-to-reel -reel tape um, disintegrates over time. So occasionally, we actually want one of those interviews. You know, let's say somebody dies and we want to revisit that particular mm -hmm. interviewer. It seems more valuable. Um, and then we yeah. have to go find the reel, bring it back, you know, bake it in the microwave so it gets pliable enough that you can play it once, one time. Um, and it's that playing is going to stretch it so much that you probably aren't going to be able to play it again. So you can play it once to transfer it to another medium. But, you know, at what point, this is, this is how it always goes, right? I mean, this is how it's gone with every kind of technology we've had. So, you know, we transfer the reel-to-reel -reel stuff onto CD. What happens? Nobody wants CDs anymore, so now we've got to digitize the CDs. And it's just going to keep going and going. And I guess each time is an opportunity to kind of edit out, winnow out. But these are big questions that, that, that aren't just about audio. You know, anybody who has a, a photo, you know, family photo collection deals with this. I have many, I have many friends who are visual artists and how they have asked a quote unquote regular person, could I take your picture? Could I paint your portrait? And what that means to somebody who maybe doesn't think of themselves as being important or doesn't yeah. see themselves as being someone who should be preserved in that particular way. And then, so what if, like my dad has a very distinctive bald head. So several artist friends over the years have asked if they could paint him. The paintings are always terrible. Like they do not look like him to us because <laughs> what they what they see as artists often they wanted, you know, one had him looking kind of gaunt and emaciated. And these are all artistic expressions of my dad. So what mattered is what you said that they said, can I paint you or draw you or whatever? That was the gift. Um, the actual product he could have done without. So it, it might be that that there's a you know kind of larger metaphor there. I'm sorry, I have to jump. This just this is a great like moment for, for us parents, right? Speaking of hoarding, uh, right? I have boxes full of little things that my little chickadee has made for me, and oh, they're so hard to get rid of. But you're right. This is you're making me rethink this. Maybe it's just the the act of making because they're you know objectively horrible works of art, uh, but but they're you know they're special to me because of the act. Yeah, you know? and I, I mean, just if we want to talk about children's art. This is so I have an entire um, drawer just of photos of, especially when my kids were little, it just, 
up until about, I mean, I guess up till there was an age at elementary school where they stopped being, wanting me to take photos of them. Um, I have an entire drawer just stuffed full of pictures of them from infancy through, you know, about age six. And they're, they're grown now. They're in their early 20s. And when they left each of them for college, I couldn't go in that box. I mean, that drawer, it made me so sad. It's taken me a while. And even now, I, yeah, I've talked with my husband recently about it. Um, he can look at those pictures and just feel joy at remembering what it was like to all be a family together when the kids were little. And I can't look mm -hmm. at them without some element of nostalgia and of feeling, you know, a little bit of grief that that time is gone, that who they were when they were four and five is never coming back. But just thinking about the past and what we cherish and what we preserve and then, you know, partly remembering it's, n it's not as simple as, oh, this will make me happy in the future. Some things you save might make you sad in the future. I'm moving for the first time in eight years. And yes, I- Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going through about 20 years of accumulated stuff. It's quite an emotional ordeal to pick each of those items up and to look at it and to remember why I have it and why did I feel like I wanted to save it? And then does it still have a place physically? in my life or is it something that I can I can say goodbye to? Um, so Steve and I spent this summer in Vermont at his parents have a summer place and they're in their 90s and weren't using it this year. And we went thinking it would be a month and a month became four and a half. And we were there with nothing was ours and, and there wasn't much stuff in it. It's a very small place. Um, I loved <laughs> living without much, just, loved it and and because the stuff that was there wasn't even mine I didn't feel responsible for it or attached to it and we came back home to this house that is full of you know the artifacts of you know our entire marriage and it just it made me feel sick when we first came home just it's too much so I'm really rethinking my feelings of um of attachment or of of wanting to have any kind of material object left around. I think I'm becoming more in favor of letting things go. And, you know, to come back to radio, I used to say that it felt, I felt kind of odd that, that at the end of the day, what I make is air, you know, air with sound in it. It's, it's ephemeral, especially before podcasts. It just went out on the audio, on the airwaves, then it was gone. And now I actually see that as incredibly comforting. It's like, this stuff shouldn't stick around. I'm happy to make something that lives in the moment and then disappears. Thank you to our guest and Strange Champs, host and co-founder of Wisconsin Public Radio's To the Best of Our Knowledge. For more info, links, and special features, visit the Holding History podcast page on www.holdinghistory.org. Holding History is a mentoring-driven public humanities program. Part of the work we do involves mentoring and featuring student curators who are learning how to use new media to talk about old things. So each episode ends with a bookish word, where our HH student curators give you the history of a weird word related to the history of books and media. <laughs> Today's word is ohem, a word I'd never heard of and maybe mispronouncing. 
Hello, everyone. I'm Megan. And I'm Rhett. For this segment, we're hurtling back 1,500 years, long before the printed book existed in the Western world, to talk about Ohem, the early Irish writing script. The Ohem script, spelled O-G-H-A-M, was possibly named for the seams that tools would have made to etch the letters. The letters themselves, consisting of a central vertical line like a trunk, with horizontal dashes like forked branches, are interpreted as names of trees, which has led scholars to call Ohem the tree alphabet. The letter names in Ohem speak to the reality of how it was used and the relationship it invokes between people and their surroundings. This writing system was a way of inscribing onto nature, implying an understanding that humans and nature aren't separated. This writing system's roots literally reflect this relationship. Though it's called the tree alphabet, today the script is mostly found on stone monuments dotting Ireland. There aren't that many surviving examples of Ohem for us to turn to if we want to further study it, though. We don't know for sure how or why Ohem was created. Some scholars think that ancient Irish people may have created Ohem to communicate in written form to elude invading Romans, while others think that early Irish Christians developed it as a written form of the Irish language. Though writing is thought to be intertwined with books, Ohem gives us a clear example that writing exists beyond its bookish forms. Though the question of its origin is still debated, Ohem invites us to understand the numerous different ways that people have used writing throughout time. We can barely scratch the surface of these histories, but they are tantalizing in their remnants. That's the end of this chapter. I'm Sarah Marty. And I'm Joshua Calhoun. Our associate producer is Tom Van Camp, and our theme music is by Luke Levitt. The bookish word was conceived, created, and recorded by Rhett Blankenship and Megan Fox. Support for this podcast was provided by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Baldwin Seed Grant and friends of UW-Madison Libraries. Learn more about Holding History at holdinghistory.org.